10, ere Holmes were to be witnesses of this justice and then to be imprisoned. After an uneventful trip the steamer reached Dapan, in the northeast of the large island of Mindanao, on a dark and rainy evening. The officer in charge of the expedition took Dr. Risal ashore with some papers relating to him and delivered all to the commandant, Ricardo Carnicero. The receipt taken was briefed, one countryman and two packages. At the same time learned men in Europe were beginning to hear of this outrage worthy of the Dark Ages and were remarking that Spain had stopped the work of the man who was practically her only representative in modern science. For the Castilian language has not been the medium through which any considerable additions have been made to the world's store of scientific knowledge. Rizal was to reside either with the commandant or with the Jesuit parish priest, if the latter would take him into the convento. But while the exile had learned with pleasure that he was to meet priests who were refined and learned, as well as associated with his happier school days, he did not know that these priests were planning to restore him to his childhood faith and had mapped out a plan of action which should first make him feel his loneliness. So he was denied residence with the priest unless he would declare himself genuinely in sympathy with Spain. On his previous brief visit to the islands he had been repelled from the Otmia with the statement that till he ceased to be anti-Catholic and anti-Spanish he would not be welcome. Padre Fora, the famous meteorologist, was his former instructor and Rizal was his favorite pupil. He had tearfully predicted that the young man would come to the scaffold at last unless he mended his ways. But Rizal, confident in the clearness of his own conscience, went out cheerfully. And when the porter tried to bring back the memory of his childhood piety by reminding him of the image of the sacred heart which he had carved years before, Rizal answered, Other times, other customs, brother, I do not believe that way any more. So Rizal, a good Catholic, was compelled to board with the commandant instead of with the priest because he was unwilling to make hypocritical professions of admiration for Spain. The commandant and Rizal soon became good friends. But in order to retain his position Carnicero had to write to the Governor-General in a different strain. The correspondence tells the facts in the main. But of course they are colored throughout to conform to Despajal's character. The Commandant is always represented as deceiving his prisoner and gaining his confidence only to betray him. But Rizal seems never to have experienced anything but straightforward dealing. Rizal's earliest letter from Dapin speaks almost enthusiastically of the place describing the climate as exceptional for the tropics, his situation as agreeable, and saying that he could be quite content if his family and his books were there. Shortly after occurred the anniversary of Carnicero's arrival in the town, and Rizal celebrated the event with a Spanish poem reciting the improvements made since his coming, written in the style of the Malayalue, and as though it were by the children of Dapan. Next Rizal acquired a piece of property at Talisai, a little bay close to Dapan and at once became interested in his farm. Soon he built a house and moved into it, gathering a number of boy assistants about him, and before long he had a school. A hospital also was put up for his patients and these in time became a source of revenue, as people from a distance came to the oculist for treatment and paid liberally. One 500 peso fee from a rich Englishman was devoted by Rizal to lighting the town and the community benefited in this way by his charity in addition to the free treatment given its poor. The little settlement at Talisai kept growing and those who lived there were constantly improving it. When Father Obuk, the Jesuit priest, fell through the bamboo stairway in the principal house, Rizal and his boys burned shells, made mortar, and soon built a fine stone stairway. 
They also did another piece of masonry work in the shape of a dam for storing water that was piped to the houses and poultry yard. The overflow from the dam was made to fill a swimming tank. The school, including the house servants, numbered about 20 and was taught without books by Rizal, who conducted his recitations from a hammock. Considerable importance was given to mathematics, and in languages English was taught as well as Spanish the entire waking period being devoted to the language allotted for the day, and whoever so far forgot as to utter a word in any other tongue was punished by having to wear a rattan handcuff. The use and meaning of this modern police device had to be explained to the boys, for Spain still tied her prisoners with rope. Nature study consisted in helping the doctor gather specimens of flowers, shells, insects and rectals which were prepared and shipped to German museums. Rizal was paid for these specimens by scientific books and material. The director of the Royal Zoological and Anthropological Museum in Dresden, Saxony, Dr. Karl von Heller, was a great friend and admirer of Dr. Rizal. Dr. Heller's father was tutor to the late King Alfonso Xii and had many friends at the court of Spain. Evidently Dr. Heller and other of his European friends did not consider Rizal a Spanish insurrectionary but treated him rather as a reformer seeking progress by peaceful means. Dr. Rizal remunerated his pupils' work with gifts of clothing, books and other useful remembrances. Sometimes the rewards were cartages, and those who had accumulated enough were permitted to accompany him in his hunting expeditions. The dignity of labor was practically inculcated by requiring everyone to make himself useful, and this was really the first school of the type, combining the use of English nature study and industrial instruction. On one occasion in the year 1894 some of his schoolboys secretly went into the town in a banca, a puppy which tried to follow them was eaten by a crocodile. Rizal tired to impress the evil effects of disobedience upon the youngsters by pointing out to them the sorrow which the mother dog felt at the loss of her young one, and emphasized the lesson by modeling a statuette called, The Mother's Revenge, wherein she is represented, in revenge, as devouring the caiman. It is said to be a good likeness of the animal which was Dr. Rizal's favorite companion in his many pedestrian excursions around Dappen. Father Francisco Sanchez, Rizal's instructor in rhetoric in the Otmio, made a long visit to Dappen and brought with him some surveyor's instruments, which his former pupil was delighted to assist him in using. Together they ran the levels for a water system for the, the town, which was later, with the aid of the Lejishut, Brother Tildot, carried to completion. This same water system is now being restored and enlarged with artesian wells by the present insular, provincial and municipal governments jointly. As part of the memorial to Rizal in this place of his exile, a visit to a not distant mountain and some digging in a spot supposed by the people of the region to be haunted brought to light curious relics of the first Christian converts among the early Moros. The state of his mind at about this period of his career is indicated by the verses written in his home in Talisay entitled, My Retreat, of which the following translation has been made by Mr. Charles Derbyshire. The scene that inspired this poem has been converted by the government into a public park to the memory of Rizal. My retreat by the spreading beach where the sands are soft and fine, at the foot of the mount in its mantle of green, I have built my hut in the pleasant grove confined, from the forest seeking peace and a calmness divine, rest for the weary brain and silence to my sorrow keen. Its roof the frail palm leaf and its floor the cane. Its beams and posts of the unhewn wood, little there is of value in this hut so plain. And better by far in the lap of the mount to have lain. By the song and the murmur of the high seas flood. 
A purling brook from the woodland glade drops down over the stones and around it sweeps. Once a fresh stream is drawn by the rough cane's aid, that in the still night its murmur has made. And in the day's heat a crystal fountain leaps. When the sky is serene how gently it flows. And its zithyrin scene ceaselessly plays. But when the rains fall a torrent it goes boiling and foaming through the rocky close. Roaring and checked to the sea's wide ways. The howl of the dog and the song of the bird. And only the callow's hoarse call resound. Nor is the voice of vain man to be heard. My mind to harass or my steps to be gird. The woodlands alone and the sea wrap me round. The sea. Ah. The sea. For me it is all. As it massively sweeps from the worlds apart. Its smile in the morn to my soul is a call. And when in the even my fath seems to pall. It breathes with its sadness an echo to my heart. By night in Arcanum, when translucent it glows, all spangled over with its millions of lights, and the bright sky above resplendent shows, while the waves with their sighs tell of their woes tales that are lost as they roll to the heights. They tell of the world when the first dawn broke, and the sunlight over their surface played, when thousands of beings from nothingness woke, to people the depths and the heights to cloak, wherever its life-giving kiss was laid, but when in the night the wild winds awake. And the waves in their fury begin to leap. Through the air rush the cries that my mind shake, voices that pray. Songs and moans that partake of laments from the souls sunk down in the deep. Then from their heights the mountains groan. And the trees shiver tremulous from great unto a least. The groves rustle plaintive and the herds utter moan. For they say that the ghosts of the folk that are gone are calling them down to their death's merry feast. In terror and confusion whispers the night. While blue and green flames flit over the deep. But calm reigns again with the morning's light. And soon the bold fisherman comes into sight. As his bark rushes on and the waves sink to sleep. So onward glide the days in my lonely abode. Driven forth from the world where once I was known. I muse o'er the fate upon me bestowed. A fragment forgotten that the moss will corrode. To hide from mankind the world in me shown. I live in the thought of the lost ones left. And oft their names to my mind are born. Some have forsaken me and some by death were reft. But now tis all one, as through the past I drift, that past which from me can never be torn, for it is the friend that is with me always, that ever in sorrow keeps the faith in my soul, while through the still night it watches and prays, as here in my exile in my lone hut it stays, to strengthen my faith when doubts o'er me roll, that faith I keep and I hope to see shine the day when the idea prevails over might, when after the fray and death slow decline, some other voice sounds, far happier than mine, to raise the glad song of the triumph of right, I see the sky glow, refulgent and clear, as when it forced on me my first dear illusion, I feel the same wine kiss my forehead's ear, and the fire is the same that is burning here to stir up youth's blood in boiling confusion, I breathe here the wines that perchance have passed over the fields and the rivers of my own natal shore, and mayhap they will bring on the returning blast the sighs that loft being upon them has cast messages sweet from the love I first bore, to see the same moon, all silvered as of yore, I feel the sad thoughts within me arise, the fond recollections of the troth we swore, of the field and the bower and the wide seashore, the blushes of joy, with the silence and sighs, a butterfly seeking the flowers and the light, of other land streaming, of vast or extent, scarce a youth, from home and love I took flight, to wander unheeding, free from doubt or affright so in foreign lands were my brightest days spent, and when like a languishing bird I was fain to the home of my fathers and my love to return, of a sudden the fierce tempest roared amain, 
So I saw my wings shattered and no home remain. My trust sold to others and wrecks round me burned. Hurled out into exile from the land I adore. My future all dark and no refuge to seek. My roseate dreams hover around me once more. Sole treasures of all that life to me bore. The faiths of youth that with sincerity speak. But not as of old. Full of life and of grace. Do you hold out hopes of a dying reward? Satirite find you. On your loft face. Though still sincere. The pale lines trace the marks of the faith it is yours to guard. You offer now. Dreams. My gloom to appease. And the years of my youth again to disclose. So I thank you. O storm. And heaven born breeze. That you knew of the hour my wild flight to ease. To cast me back down to the soil whence I rose. By the spreading beach where the sands are soft and fine. At the foot of the mount in its mantle of green. I have found a home in the pleasant grove confined. In the shady woods. That peace and calmness divine. Rest for the weary brain and silence to my sorrow keen. The church benefited by the presence of the exile. For he drew the design for an elaborate curtain to adorn the sanctuary at Easter time. And an artist sister of charity of the school there did the oil painting under his direction. In this line he must have been proficient. For once in Spain. Where he traveled out of his way to Saragossa to visit one of his former teachers of the Otmio. Who he had heard was there. Rizal offered his assistance in making some altar paintings, and the Jesuit says that his skill and taste were much appreciated. The home of the sisters had a private chapel, for which the teachers were preparing an image of the Virgin. For the sake of economy the head only was procured from abroad, the vestments concealing all the rest of the figure except the feet, which rested upon a globe encircled by a snake and whose mouth is an apple. The beauty of the countenance, a real work of art, appealed to Rizal and he modeled the more prominent right foot, the apple and the serpent's head, while the artist's sister assisted by doing the minor work, both curtain and image, twenty years after their making, are still in use. On Sundays, Father Sanchez and Rizal conducted a school for the people after Mass. As part of this education it was intended to make raised maps in the plaza of the chief city of the eight principal islands of the Philippines, but on account of Father Sanchez's being called away, only one. Mindanao, was completed, it has been restored with a concrete sidewalk and palustrade about it, while the plaza is a national park, among Rizal's patients was a blind American named Toffer, fairly well to do, who had been engineer of the pumping plant of the Hong Kong Fire Department, he was a man of bravery, for he held a diploma for helping to rescue five Spaniards from a shipwreck in Hong Kong Harbor, and he was not less kind-hearted, for he and his wife, a Portuguese, had adopted and brought up as their own the infant daughter of a poor Irish woman who had died in Hong Kong, leaving a considerable family to her husband, a corporal in the British Army on service there. The little girl had been educated in the Italian convent after the first Mrs. Toffer died, and upon Mr. Toffer's remarriage, to another Portuguese, the adopted daughter and Mr. Toffer's own child were equally sharers of his home. This girl had known Rizal, the Spanish doctor, as he was called there, in Hong Kong, and persuaded her adopted father that possibly the Dapit exile might restore his lost eyesight. So with the two girls and his wife, Mr. Toffer set out for Mindanao. At Manila his own daughter fell in love with a Filipino engineer, a Mr. Sonico, now owner of a foundry in Manila, and, marrying, remained there. But the party reached Dapitan with its original number for they were joined by a good-looking mestiza from the south who was unofficially connected with one of the canons of the Manila Cathedral, 
Josephina Bracken, the Irish girl, was lively, capable and of congenial temperament, and as there no longer existed any reason against his marriage, for Rissal considered his political days over, they agreed to become husband and wife. The priest was asked to perform the ceremony, but said the Bishop of Sedu must give his consent, and offered to write him. Rissal at first feared that some political retraction would be asked but when assured that only his religious beliefs would be investigated, promptly submitted a statement which Father Obock says covered about the same ground as the earliest published of the retractions said to have been made on the eve of Rissal's death. This document, enclosed with the priest's letter, was ready for the mail when Rissal came hurrying in to reclaim it. The marriage was off, for Mr. Toffer had taken his family and gone to Manila. The explanation of this sudden departure was that, after the blind man had been told of the impossibility of anything being done for his eyes, he was informed of the proposed marriage. The trip had already cost him one daughter. He had found that his blindness was incurable, and now his only remaining daughter, who had for seventeen years been like his own child, was planning to leave him. He would have to return to Hong Kong hopeless and accompanied only by a wife he had never seen, one who really was merely a servant. In his despair he said he had nothing to lie for, and, seizing his razor, would have ended his life had not Rissal seized him just in time and held him, with the firm grasp his athletic training had given him, till the commandant came and calmed the excited blind man. It resulted in Joe's final returning to Manila with him, but after a while Mr. Toffer listened to reason and she went back to Dappen. After a short stay in Manila with Rissal's family, to whom she had carried his letter of introduction, taking considerable housekeeping furniture with her. Further consideration changed Rissal's opinion as to marriage, possibly because the second time the priest may not have been so liberal in his requirements. The mother, too, seems to have suggested that as Spanish law had established civil marriage in the Philippines, and as the local government had not provided any way for people to avail themselves of the right, because the governor-general had pigeonholed the royal decree, it would be less sinful for the two to consider themselves civilly married than for Rissal to do violence to his conscience by making any sort of political retraction. Any marriage so bought would be just as little a sacrament as an absolutely civil marriage, and the latter was free from hypocrisy. So as man and wife Rissal and Joe's final lived together in Talisai, Father Robach sought to prejudice public feeling in the town against the exile for the scandal, though other scandals' happenings with less reason were going on in Rabat. The pages of Dappen, which some have considered to be the first chapter of an unfinished novel, may reasonably be considered no more than Rissal's rejoinder to Father Robach, written in sarcastic vein and primarily for Carnicero's amusement, unless some date of writing earlier than this should hereafter be found for them. Joe's Fina was bright, vivacious, and a welcome addition to the little colony at Talisai. But at times Rissal had misgivings as to how it came that this foreigner should be permitted by a suspicious and absolute government to join him. When Filipinos, over whom the authorities could have exercised complete control, were kept away, Joe's finest frequent visits to the convento once brought this suspicion to an open declaration of his misgivings by Rissal, but two days of weeping upon her part caused him to avoid the subject thereafter. Could the exile have seen the confidential correspondence in the secret archives the plan would have been plain to him, for there it is suggested that his impressionable character could best be reached through the sufferings of his family, and that only his mother and sisters should be allowed to visit him. 
Steps in this plot were or the gradual pardoning and returning of the members of his family to their homes. Josephina must remain a mystery to us as she was to Rizal. While she was in a delicate condition Rizal played a prank on her, harmless in itself, which startled her so that she sprang forward and struck against an iron stand. Though it was pure accident and Rizal was scarcely at fault, he blamed himself for it, and his later devotion seems largely to have been trying to make amends. The burial of the son of Rizal, sometimes referred to as occurring at Dapon, has for its foundation the consequences of this accident. A sketch hastily penciled in one of his medical books depicts an unusual condition apparent in the infant which, had it regularly made its appearance in the world some months later, would have been cherished by both parents. This loss was a great and common grief which banished thereafter all distrust upon his part and all occasion for it upon hers. Rizal's mother and several of his sisters, the latter changing from time to time, had been present during this critical period. Another operation had been performed upon Mrs. Rizal's eyes, but she was restive and disregarded the ordinary precautions, and the son was in despair. A letter to his brother-in-law, Manuel Hidalgo, who was inclined toward medical studies, says, I now realize the reason why physicians are directed not to practice in their own families. A story of his mother and Rizal, necessary to understand his peculiar attitude toward her, may serve as the transition from the hero's sad later married experience to the real romance of his life. Mrs. Rizal's talents commanded her son's admiration, as her care for him demanded his gratitude, but, despite the common opinion, he never had that sense of companionship with her that he enjoyed with his father. Mrs. Rizal was a strict disciplinarian and a woman of an exceptionable character, but she arrogated to herself an infallibility which at times was trying to those about her, and she foretold bitter fates for those who dared dispute her. Just before Jose went abroad to study, while engaged to his cousin, Leonora Rivera, Mrs. Rivera and her daughter visited their relatives in Calamba. Naturally the young man wished the guests to have the best of everything, one day when they visited a bathing place nearby he used the family's newest carriage, though this had not been forbidden, his mother spoke rather sharply about it, Jose ventured to remind her that guests were to present and that it would be better to discuss the matter in private, angry because one of her children ventured to dispute her, she replied, you are an undutiful son, you will never accomplish anything which you undertake. All your plans will result in failure. These words could not be forgotten, as succeeding events seem to make their prophecy come true. And there is pathos in one of Rizal's letters in which he reminds his mother that she had foretold his fate. His thoughts of an early marriage were overruled because his unmarried sisters did not desire to have a sister-in-law in their home who would add to the household cares but was not trained to bear her share of them. And even Pashano, who was in his favor, thought that his younger brother would mar his career by marrying early. So, with fervent promises and high hopes, Rizal had sailed away to make the fortune which should allow him to marry his cousin Leonora. She was constantly in his thoughts and his long letters were mailed with regular frequency during all his first years in Europe, but only a few of the earliest ever reached her. And as few replies came into his hands, though she was equally faithful as a correspondent, Leonora's mother had been told that it was for the good of her daughter's soul and in the interest of her happiness that she should not become the wife of a man like Rizal, who was obnoxious to the church and in disfavor with the government. So, by advice, Mrs. Rivera gradually withheld more and more of the correspondence upon both sides, until finally it ceased. 
and she constantly suggested to the unhappy girl that her youthful lover had forgotten her amid the distractions and gaieties of Europe. Then the same influence which had advised breaking off the correspondence found a person whom the mother and others joined in urging upon her as a husband, till at last, in the belief that she owed obedience to her mother, she reluctantly consented, strangely like the proposed husband of the Maria Clara of Nalimi Tanher, in which book Rizal had prophetically pictured her. This husband was, one whose children should rule, an English engineer whose position had been found for him to make the match more desirable. Their marriage took place, and when Rizal returned to the Philippines she learned how she had been deceived. Then she asked for the lepers that had been withheld, and when told that as a wife she might not keep love lepers from any but her husband, she pleaded that they be burned and the ashes given her. This was done, and the silver box with the blackened bits of paper upon her dresser seemed to be a consolation during the few months of life which she knew would remain to her. Another great disappointment to Rizal was the action of Despajal when he first arrived in Dapan, for he still believed in the Governor-General's good faith and thought in that fertile but sparsely settled region he might plant his new Calamba without the objection that had been urged against the British North Borneo project. All seemed to be going on favorably for the assembling of his relatives and neighbors in what then would be no longer exile. One most insultingly. The Governor-General refused the permission which Rizal had had reason to rely upon his granting. The exile was reminded of his deportation and taunted with trying to make himself a king, though he did not know it. This was part of the plan which was to break his spirit, so that when he was touched with the sufferings of his family he would yield to the influences of his youth and make complete political retraction, thus would be removed the most reasonable, and therefore the most formidable opponent of the unnatural conditions Philippines and of the selfish interests which were profiting by them. But the plotters failed in their plan, they had mistaken their man. During all this time Rizal had repeated chances to escape, and persons high in authority seemed to have urged flight upon him. Running away, however, seemed to him a confession of guilt, the opportunities of doing so always unsettled him. For each time the battle of self-sacrifice had to be fought over again, but he remained firm in his purpose. To meet death bravely is one thing, to seek it is another and harder thing, but to refuse life and choose death over and over again during many years is the rarest kind of heroism. Rizal used to make long trips, sometimes cruising for a week in his explorations of the Mindanao coast, and some of his friends proposed to charter a steamer in Singapore and, passing near Dapan, pick him up on one of these trips. Another Philippine steamer going to Borneo suggested taking him on board as a rescue at sea and then landing him at their destination, where he would be free from Spanish power. Either of these schemes would have been feasible, but he refused both. Plans, which materialized, to benefit the fishing industry by improved nets imported from his Laguna home, and to find a market for the Abaca of Dapan, were joined with the introduction of American machinery, for which Rizal acted as agent. Among planters of neighboring islands, it was a busy, useful life, and in the economic advancement of his country the exile believed he was as patriotic as when he was working politically. Rizal personally had been fortunate, for in company with the commandant and a Spaniard, originally deported for political reasons from the peninsula, he had gained one of the richer prizes in the government lottery. These funds came most opportunely for the land troubles and succeeding litigation had almost stripped the family of all its possessions. The account of the first news in Dapan of the good fortune of the three is interestingly told in an official report to the Governor-General from the Commandant, 
the official saw the infrequent mail steamer arriving with flying bunting and at once imagined some high authority was aboard, he hastened to the beach with a band of music to assist in the welcome, but was agreeably disappointed with the news of the luck which had befallen his prisoner and himself. Not all of Dapit life was profitable and prosperous, yet in spite of this resolve stayed in the town, this was pure self-sacrifice for he refused to make any effort for his own release by invoking influences which could have brought pressure to bear upon the Spanish home government. He feared to act lest obstacles might be put in the way of the reforms that were apparently making headway through Despajal's initiative, and was content to wait rather than to jeopardize the prospects of others. A plan for his transfer to the north, in the Ilocano country, had been deferred and had met with obstacles which Rizal believed were placed in its way through some of his own countrymen in the peninsula who feared his influence upon the revenue with which politics was furnishing them. Another proposal was to appoint Rizal district health officer for Dapan, but this was merely a covert government bribe. While the exile expressed his willingness to accept the position, he did not make the unequivocally Spanish professions that were needed to secure this appointment. Yet the government could have been satisfied of Rizal's innocence of any treasonable designs against Spain's sovereignty in the islands had it known how the exile had declined in opportunity to head the movement which had been initiated on the eve of his deportation. His name had been used to gather the members together and his portrait hung in each gate of Punan Lodge Hall. But all this was without Rizal's consent or even his knowledge. The members, who had been paying faithfully for four years, felt that it was time that something besides collecting money was done. Their restiveness and suspicions led Andres Bonifacio, its head, to resort to Rizal, feeling that a word from the exile, who had religiously held aloof from all politics since his deportation, would give the Catapunan leaders more time to mature their plans. So he sent a messenger to Dapan, Pio Valenzuela, a doctor, who to Conci, 